0: Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Eric Hoffman. And we are talking about The Grendel Tales Omnibus Volume 1. Interesting book. I'm glad you recommended it to me.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. It's a mixed bag.
0: There's things I enjoyed more than I expected to and there's a few pieces I enjoyed less. Do you want to just go in order or do you want to call out maybe your favorites and least favorites.
1: Maybe we should start with the initial Brendel Tales was in the A1 omnibus from 1990, which was written by James Robinson, who wrote, uh, yes, uh, Starman, James Robinson. He wrote the, yeah, he wrote the Four Devils, One Hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was the first in the omnibus it's the first lengthy uh
0: grendel's tales which was it was published in i think six issues yeah it's a six-parter 6 this part- is a one story one. that the first time i read it i didn't uh, enjoy very much and then the mm-hmm. second time through i kind of let it wash over me more and so yes. I appreciate a, a lot more than I expected to. The art's by Teddy Christensen, and he does a really interesting job with it. There's something about his coloring that just seems to, like, glow, if you know what I mean. His yellows are just a bright yellow. His reds are an intense red. The way he draws all his scenes is very kind of Plasticky, but in a way that gives it this weird three-dimensional feel to it and in certain scenes like in the very beginning uh when we see the white-clad grendel attacking in the forest it has this kind of beautiful darkness to it that's really compelling to me
1: yeah it's a very rich it almost has it almost has a classic Japanese landscape influence in a way, the mm-hmm. color palette and the uh, I guess the <clears throat> every page seems different, and yet, and and I think that I think that um, has something to do with the fact that we're following in this four devils one hell, uh, which was the first lengthy as we said this is the first it was a six issue mini series um which was published in 93 and 1994 by dark horse who sort of picked up the mantle from kamiko miko folded because initially the grendel tales was supposed to be published by kamiko and in fact they announced the series in the final issue of grundle issue number 40 with this uh first story that's in the Omnibus Double worship which was written by steven siegel who go on to collaborate with wagner on sandman mystery theater which is an excellent series and mm-hmm. was drawn by shay anderson who uh, i know you're an admirer of hoche anderson's stuff i can't recall uh, he did a, a a comic book biography of someone and i can't martin think of luther who it king. is martin luther king excellent excellent uh, comic book biography yeah
0: uh, it's very good
1: right and so that was in 1990 but just before that was another james robinson comic um which came, came out in the a1 anthology which was published by atomica initially which was a uk publisher and it's a great anthology series i think there were six issues of that, I believe. And um, that was, uh, I, did I send you the link for that? I have those. It was in A1 Book 4 with the Simon Bisley on the cover. And the artwork yeah. that in the story, it's, a, it's an interesting story, actually, because it isn't a Grendel Tales proper, but it is probably the first instance I can think of where another writer, other than Wagner, was writing Grendel. And he chose to do the story around uh, the character of the police detective, Captain Wiggins. And there's a child murderer is holding someone captive, and he is there to, you know, the, the cops are there, COP is there to... Arrest this guy. And at some point he has absconded with Brian Lee Sung's mask. And it's sort of drawn in a faux Bernie Moreau art style by Disraeli. And I think Disraeli ended up doing some artwork for the uh, red, white, and black or black, white, and red series, yeah. I believe. It's an interesting little story. It doesn't really work dramatically. It's a real early example of James Robinson's writing, but it's just a little eight-pager. It is interesting, I guess, in the sense that it's another Captain Wiggins story, and it involves Brian Lee Sung's wonderful mask, which you and I both love so much. Yeah. (laughs) Very. So, and then there was this Hoche Anderson-Steven Siegel story, in the last issue of Grendel, which I assume was meant to be a standalone story. And I guess we can, if you want to talk about that one quickly, before we get into the Grendel Tales proper, I don't know if there's too much to say about it i'm not i i wasn't too taken with that it's only a 20 or 30 page story it seems kind of indicative of one of the problems of the grendel tales where it seems like it was the story that steven siegel had already and sort of retrofitted it to fit the grendel mythos of the sort of post-Jupiter-Asante-Grendel-futuristic world, and it doesn't quite seem to gel with that. It, I had a hard time fitting this Toronto University of Science and Politics, um, you know, storyline with these um, this rally and against the Grendels and these sort of well-meaning liberal university students protesting uh, the strong arm of the... Grendel army. It just didn't seem to quite gel with me. It didn't really seem to go anywhere, and the climax sort of seemed... I don't know.
0: It, it, so I was going to bring this up when we talk about the devil in our midst also. This was one of those stories that, as you said, it feels like it's retrofitted to include Grendel. It's as much a story about this guy and his unrequited love for the, these women and his kind of passion that gets caught in the middle of politics, and so theoretically interesting story. But by putting the Grendel, the themes of Grendel, on top of it, I think it robs it of a lot of what would have made the story interesting. I mean, I kept thinking if this had been set in 1968 during the height of the Vietnam movement, and it was more about the police coming in uh, uh, to repress an anti-war movement, I think would have had a lot more power to it. Instead, it's this weird kind of polyglot story. It's very passive in that we don't really get any action. It's a lot of talking, a lot of talking around things. I mean, we have the the aftermath. For example, we have the, the pyromania, I guess you could call it, the police on pages 16 and 17, but it never seems to land with an impact. It seems somehow distant to us. And part of that might be the narration. Part of that might be Anderson's just very sketchy art style. But none of it seems to land very well. Right.
1: Yeah. And what? I'm
0: sorry. I just found myself really unsatisfied with this story.
1: Right. It's Except not there's a
0: whole business with him buying a piece of the original mask. That never amounts to anything. It potentially would be a very interesting story. And I was like, there's probably a full story just in someone owning this relic in every sense of the word of someone who you admire. And yet there's really nothing. It doesn't pay off in any way. So the story is both off in terms of what what it's about, but also feels really short. But also feels like it's maybe too long, if that makes any sense.
1: <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah. It's too sketchy to really the characters aren't well drawn, the story isn't really interesting, and it doesn't really arrive at any sort of satisfying dramatic climax. And this issue of relics with the with Grendel, it's interesting because it uh, it's sort of a carry-through a little bit throughout the series and and it, it would make for an interesting segue to get to Four Devils, One Hell, um, mm. which deals a lot with Grendel relics and, and a particular Grendel relic, which sort of gets played with a little bit later on by Wagner himself and Behold the Devil. But it, that whole idea of the Grendel relics and, and the Hunter Rose, especially having some sort of like um, talismanic power is interesting to me. And it really starts with Christine Spar breaking into the museum to steal the mask and the the blade of Hunter Rose. And you already see that at the beginning where where there's already this sort of magnetic, sort of religious element, the Grendel, whatever it is, demon or entity. There's already this power hold that it has on people. And that seems to be, I think, with Four Devils, One Hell, that seems to be the major theme of that particular miniseries is this idea of the hold that the Grendel entity or idea has on people. And how it compels them to behave or how it draws them into, I I guess, disaster (laughs) or what have you. But if you want to, I don't know if there's anything else much to say about those two initial stories. I mean, I think we could just jump right into the miniseries proper with Four Devils
0: One Hell. And we'd well, already yeah, let's keep going on that because there's a lot to chew on in Four Devils One Hell.
1: Yes, there is. Probably maybe too much. Um, there's really seems to be four storylines taking place. Four major storylines with four main characters and at times it can get a little confusing um to kind of keep track of who what when and where uh throughout this story but uh at least in the initial reading of it i i like you i went back actually and that's this one i had read before i read it again in preparation for this and then i read it again um just because Mm i i felt like i missed a few crucial components along the way it's it's a, a complex and convoluted storyline and it times the strokes you know the dramatic strokes they don't quite seem to follow through or connect i mean there's a few beats that robinson really misses and you can really see that he's a little i won't say amateur but he's definitely kind of like cutting his teeth
0: with this story as far as his development is a because... No, the pieces don't always come together, and it's not a point where we ha- are expected to fill in the gaps. It's more that there are story elements that he just misses in some way.
1: Well, I, I just think that some of the character motivations are sort of uh,
0: unclear. I'm still struggling a little bit about why the art collector, Grendel, gets dragged into this in the same way. And what that really has to do in connection with the other storylines, there's a real power to that idea that feels a little underutilized. I'm also not clear, like the seduction scene, for example, in the bar in New Orleans, I think was a great scene. But again, I'm not sure how all that connects up to everything else. And... Like, she talks about not having affection for the guy she seduces, that Grendel, but instead, actually, she seems to actually gain affection for him. Um, And I just think there's, maybe there's some self-denial there or something, but it it just never seems to connect up. Also, all the stuff with voodoo is, like, really presented in a very intriguing way. Like, it's very compelling when it first comes up in the story, and it's never really followed up on in a satisfying way. I mean, it's a right. vampire story, not a voodoo story. So right. I don't know where the connection is supposed to be between the two of them. You know, why set the story in New Orleans, bring in voodoo and then bring in the vampires? I mean, it's one or the other, right? And there, here, here's another as I'm leafing through the, the book. On Fat Tuesday, why are the one Grendel and the child dressed as Sylvester and Tweety Bird? Uh, no one else is in a costume there among our leading leading cast. What purpose does it serve? We're not giving any given any perspective to say, well, there's thousands of people in costumes, so they will they won't stand out in the crowd. Instead, because we only see, you know, maybe a half dozen people in a real costume. Even in the large crowd scene on page 138 in the omnibus, there's a relatively small number of people in costume. Most people are looking like themselves drawn in, in their regular clothes. And because of that, the fact that they're in costume just seems really strange, really unexplained. Now, that scene, the larger scene at the Mardi Gras, especially that eerie float of the the Grendel devil with the forked feet and the flames behind it and the wings, that's really pretty eerie. And the city overrun by people and the bright way that Christensen draws this golden, uh, the the painting of the coloring of it with this suffused with gold, almost as if it's this mix of divine and evil is really interesting. But None of that really comes together in any way that ends up, to me, leading towards a larger idea of the plot.
1: It's almost like Robinson had snatches of ideas, and again, we spoke about this earlier, of sort of using the Grendel world as a stage in which to present other ideas that maybe originally didn't have anything to do with Grendel. It's almost like he had... A few sort of sketched out ideas that weren't really fully fleshed out yet and decided to sort of throw them into the mix and maybe see if, you know, what would happen. almost like experimentally, uh, just sort of mix these all of these disparate elements together and see if he could work some magic, which in some cases he does. And in some cases he doesn't.
0: So what do you think think are the places where he works his magic the best? Well, I think that the, the
1: this female Grendel that has this really striking samurai costume, I think she has a fairly compelling s- storyline. It seemed to be the one that interested me the most, and it seemed to be the one that had the most, I guess, Grendel-esque theme at mm-hmm. work. And she seemed to be the most personally conflicted character in the storyline. And that to me, I mean, I guess there's an, you, whenever you're reading a story like this, you are looking for those characters that you want to identify with or latch on to as a hero, or at least the protagonist who's going to draw you through all of these various plot elements to the ending. And she seems to be the, the, the most clear-cut in that sense, having uh first, second, and third act with a dra- dramatic conclusion.
0: She Whereas, does get a great ending, doesn't she?
1: Yes, she does, yeah.
0: Art brought me this far and killed me. Right. But I was able to see a beautiful woman smile, and I die content. Right. And the beautiful woman smiles the Mona Lisa. Yeah, it's just a really nice ending.
1: There are some very interesting worthwhile moments in this initial series but it just doesn't seem to coalesce it just doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to cohere in a satisfying way the artwork is definitely coherent (laughs) teddy christensen does a fantastic job with this painted artwork i mean it's it's really striking and experimental and interesting the the page layouts and the panels the way they're drawn with this white outline or these sort of almost kind of like Kent Williams style uh, border graphics that he uses that are kind of reminded me a little bit of like blood of tail (laughs) right I mean there's there's some really interesting things going on graphically but you know when you have a comic that has four different narrators you start to get in a little too I think there's too much of the kitchen sink involved here yeah we could have benefited from maybe having four one issue arcs in that sense rather than trying to tie all of these different
0: things together in in, in some way
1: I don't I felt think like
0: we knew the point of view character too we had I'm sorry go ahead keep going
1: well, I, I think Robinson's, um, I think he's, his talent is unable to meet his ambitions. Thank you. I think his talents fall fall short of his ambitions here.
0: I agree. I mean, I would have, I think I, you know, I had someone tell me before, review the comic you're, you read, not the comic you want to read. But, like, if we had had, say, Montavani as being the lead character, the, in, the investigator, He would have been a natural entry point for us to really explore this world in a deeper way. Instead, it just feels so much more diffuse, maybe, than it needs to be. Right. And, yeah, yeah, his ambitions just exceeded his reach.
1: You kind of want the detective character to be that protagonist at the beginning. And it almost feels like he should, just because, I don't know, maybe we're so conditioned to have the detective Pratt. Protagonist when there's a mystery involved, but the mystery just sort of seems to, like you said, it just doesn't ever seem to really come to any kind of fruition. It, it's unclear what the motivate the character motivations are and why characters are being drawn into the storyline and why.
0: Yeah, Wagner himself had used detectives before. Wiggins, we were just talking about, was the protagonist of those two uh, two issue storylines. And that gave us a, a, a real good perspective into a larger world. It's almost right. as if Robinson was playing with this idea of having multiple por- protagonists and just didn't quite reach it. I wonder how he would take it on differently. To me, it's a little bit of a lesson to think about as, uh, you know, as someone who might write comics to to think about a gateway character. Because, gosh, there's so much good in Four Devils, One Hell, but it just doesn't quite come together. Yeah, I'm just... Now, in- devil's hammer moving on to our next story yeah. we definitely have a character to provide us focus and i think the story benefits from that because the ideas rob walton explores are big and i mean as big as god and the devil meditations on religion and meditations on nature versus s- human society and I think the story works well on its own terms because Walton's providing us some way to engage with the story. This is one that first time I read it, the violence of it and the darkness of it really put me off. And then the second time through, almost as if I was swimming in ice cold water and then got used to the water, I was able to focus more on the theological aspects of it and the character aspects of it and I thought the story worked much better um it, it still feels a little off in that it feels like a medieval fantasy not fantasy and that's what the word is a medieval it's not really an Alleg- adventure either what allegory allegory yeah.
1: yeah
0: uh but I think it works a lot more on it, it I think it succeeds a lot better on its own terms than the previous story
1: I agree, it's much more concise, uh, very focused. Uh, It's clear that Rob Walton has something he wants to accomplish with this and he accomplishes it. (laughs) Um, The artwork, uh, well, you know, okay, I I should say that this is a three issue series, one of the shorter ones. Uh, It was the only Grendel Tales that wasn't republished in a paperback collection Mm, mm -hmm. which um, I don't know why that was. I I think maybe this wasn't the most popular or well-accepted Grendel storyline. It makes sense to me that it wouldn't be because um, it is, as you said, with the violence, well, not that Grendel is not violent. I mean, it's a very violent comic book, but um, the artwork is, uh, it's very stylized, and I think, I, I don't know if it's amateur, I don't know Rob Walton's work all that well, so I don't know if it's intentionally look trying to look a bit amateur, but it definitely has a sort of amateurish look to it.
0: Uh, this is Walton's style at the time. So he had drawn a comic for Aerosol Comics called Bloodlines, and that's, oh, what, that's what Wagner so. found and recommended he to uh, Grendel's story. Subsequent to this, he did a, I want to say, eight or ten issue series called Ragmop, which he self-published and then published briefly through Image. That was much more a political satire with um, some Warner Brothers mixed into it. One of the more unique comics of the 1990s. Um, but, and at that point, Walton, I think, had moved into animation. And so uh, his work had gotten looser. This is clearly a little bit of early work also by a creator who had some potential to do better. And there's some sequences in here, I think that are pretty powerful, especially in book two, the bit with uh, the crazy guy who pees on the relic, followed by the sequence with the, uh, I don't know what to call it, the nun version of Grendel with the, the kind of large medieval hood and mask and the, the fight scenes there have a really nice mix of perspectives. You can really see Walton kind of showing off some of his skills there, but it's still not quite fully baked in in the way that a a Wagner story might be.
1: So it's interesting that it's sort of faux medieval. Um, I thought that was a really interesting choice to have as, uh, that's not not a, maybe not, well, maybe a worldview, but also world building. Uh, this idea that in the future, after all of these you know, events have unfolded and society has been radically altered by Grendel and by nuclear warfare and by vampirism and all of these things that come into play as world transforming and destructive forces, um, that there would be societies somewhere on Earth that would regress to... Fill in the gap for where technological 20th century society is, or 21st century, well, it'd be 20th century when this was published, but where we are now, you know, post that, there would be, I guess, people who would devise societies that were based on historical precedent. Uh, I guess that's the takeaway that we get from this. Um, that
0: rather they just fell back into a more medieval existence.
1: right. Right.
0: which is and, also kind of another way of saying the same thing.
1: Yeah, it it is uh, right. well, that 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 this is a way of being absent technological, you know, democratic societies that this is a this is, I guess in our genetic, pool in a way that certain people would, in certain places, regress to the state, how their society functions. And this character that wears the Grendel mask, which I thought, you know, again, we could say the same thing that we've said about all of the stories so far, that it seems like a story that maybe Rob Walton wanted to tell that doesn't necessarily take place in the future. Or didn't necessarily need to take place in the future. That doesn't really depend on Grendel as a narrative aspect. You know, it, it's interesting to me that Grendel. I guess you could make the case that when Wagner, that he had he and his co-creators had developed this world, had done enough world building where they could invite other artists to bring their vision to it and to use it almost like a color you know almost like a palette to do their own artwork uh that there were these themes uh, uh, that could be utilized and so it definitely reflects a lot of the themes that are in earlier grendel stories mm-hmm. so in that sense it it is a it, it does seem to address some of the core thematic concerns of wagner's work which is interesting to me. Um,
0: it's an interesting it's been, melding of the two, right?
1: It is an interesting melding of the two. Whereas in Four Devils One Hell, it seems a bit jarring for the most part with a lot of the characters, You know, save maybe the, the female Grendel that I spoke about. Uh, in this storyline, it seems more successfully integrated. and
0: Because I think it fits, and I'm going to cut you off, but my first, I, I got to respond with that, which. I think the idea of a devil personified in flesh just fits right. a medieval morality tale very well.
1: Absolutely. Where
0: he is literally a physical manifestation of the devil in the same way that the abbot shot through with arrows is a little literal manifestation of the soul of Jesus.
1: Right. And there's and there's interesting, I mean, not just the um, mask that's worn by the—it's the abbot that has the Grendel face mask design, but mm-hmm. you know the 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 crazy lunatic who's peeing on everything, <laughs> which I love, which is such a great medieval character. I mean, one of the wonderful things about it is it's all, it's got like a Hieronymus Bosch sort of look to him, like he's straight out of a Hieronymus Bosch painting, and he's he's uh, wielding a Hunter Rose style. Staff with uh, the the blades on the end, right? So there's it's nice little kind of. I mean, they're not really in your face. I mean, it's pretty subtle sort of, um, I guess, visual references that are made to Grendel that are just perfectly integrated into this totally different world. And none of the other artists uh, or or writers, um, to their, you know, to Rob Walton's credit, um, this this world is wholly his own um mm-hmm. you know i guess you could say in some of these other storylines could comfortably coexist you know they share a lot of the same settings and i guess social the civilizations seem like they could coexist in in, in a futuristic setting whereas this just seems wholly apart completely and in that sense it's, it's very interesting that he's able to, to do this and still make it seem like a convincing aspect of that futuristic Grendel world that's being explored throughout these Grendel tales. So
0: well, The ending of this story where he says, no, I am Grendel Christus, Messiah. Come to deliver the world from your evil. It, it's like this fascinating way that the world of the Wagner created is merged with this medieval world of mysticism in a way right religious mysticism um and and you know and, and uh cutting off the hands and feet of the abbot and having him tortured and you were seen almost literally tortured by the devil uh is just a really nice way of paying it off I want to say one more thing, and it's a nice transition moving into our next story, Devil in Our Midst. Uh, There's a crucifixion scene in this story, in both storylines here, in in Devil in Our Midst, as well as in Walton's story. And I think it's really interesting. What is it about, you know, this world that, that both Walton and Paul Grist and Steve Siegel kind of hit upon the same idea, because I'm sure they weren't talking about these stories together.
1: That's that's true. That's interesting. Um, before I comment on that, I did want to point out an interesting sort of salient point, which perhaps blows a hole in my theory that Captain Wiggins was possessed by Brendel, because at the conclusion of... Devil's Hammer, where um, where what's his name? Uh, Christus Petrius, or I can't I can't think of his name now. But Petrus, where he's transformed into this enormous muscular beast. Um, he's shouting uh, the names of ostensibly what are individuals who were possessed by the demon and. He says Rose, Spar, Lee, Thatcher, and Asante. So I think the takeaway from that is if Wagner was involved in this, and I'm sure he was, he illustrated the covers, but uh, I think the takeaway from that is that perhaps Captain Wiggins wasn't uh, possessed by Grendel, which is interesting to me that he's overlooked because he does seem uh, in the original series Seems to be an important, I guess, um, pastor of the torch from Brian Lee Sung to you know the future world of Grendel, where yeah, which is, yeah.
0: I gotta ask too before we move on, yeah. there's a lot of stuff in part three with body weird body stuff, yeah. starting with Petrus's mouth enormous in on one page, and then. As you mentioned, his transformation into this muscle bound thing, I'll just call it right. a thing, massive penis and all. Uh, the abbot being twisted, his whole body literally being twisted. What do you make of all that? Is that some sort of religious ecstasy? Is this a dream? Is this meant to be taken literally? How do you interpret that?
1: I think that it's meant to be taken literally i think that that's um but only in the sense that we currently live in a uh, world that has been robbed of its magic and Hmm. a medieval world has still has people who in their daily life everything that they encountered everything that they did had a magical element to it even if it's just religion but also superstition and certain rites that they took that took place and all had this magical quality to them and I think that Walton is trying to sort of because because they are living in this um sort of retro medieval world uh he's He's sort of his his physics, his reality is operating within that construct, that mental construct, that social construct. And because it was a world that was still um, you know, the medieval world was still occupied largely by magic, I think he's trying to say that um, once you're once you're no longer sort of um, adhering to the delimiting, you know, um, modern world that's purely scientific or rational, um, that, you know, you're, you're cleansed of that. And so you're going to see if you're thinking and feeling and being as religiously minded or mystically minded, you're going to be aware of these, uh, these, these things, and these things are going to be revealed to you in that sense. So I I think it's a little, maybe a little from column A, a little from column B, maybe it is a little bit of the perception of the characters. Um, But also, I think, uh, you know, Grendel is um, a fantasy comic in the sense that, you know, it has werewolves and vampires and demons that possess people. So I don't think it really adheres to a strictly Um, realistic viewpoint from the beginning. So I think Walton felt like he was not only free to um, incorporate this sort of, you know, completely unrealistic, fantastic um, transformation, physical transformation. uh, I think he maybe felt like he was obligated to, given that that's sort of the wheelhouse of Grendel is, that it does involve hmm. these magical elements.
0: It's interesting. He felt obligated to. I'm not sure I would go that way, but <laughs> I like your interpretation.
1: <laughs> so that brings us to Devil in Our Midst, which is. I spoke a little bit about the John Carpenter influence of the final storyline with the the devils in a previous podcast, I spoke a little bit about how it seemed like a John Carpenter movie that John Carpenter never made. And here we have what is very reminiscent, and many people have commented on this. I'm not alone. I'm not original in saying this, but this definitely is very reminiscent of The Thing, if only Mm -hmm. because of a sort of Arctic or Antarctic setting uh, with uh, primarily men and their you know, trapped and cut off from society, and they are being um, attacked more or less by uh, what is a you know invisible infiltrator. So this was written again by Stephen Siegel and uh, the Arts by Paul Grist, whose only other work that i'm I, I know of was a one shot that he did with Grant Morrison called sink Swithin's Day. And I can't think
0: of anything else. No, he did a lot of other work. He self-published a book called Cain that was excellent. He had a book out through, uh, several books out through Image also that were quite good. Um, I know Grist is kind of a polarizing figure. A lot of people feel his work on this book is uh, not slick enough for the story he's trying to tell. I happen to like his work a lot, so I found it compelling. But I can see a lot of people dislike it you know more than anything reading this story just felt like such a lighter refresher after reading the previous two or three stories it w- it really felt like a relief to have it be just like basically a giant monster tale yeah and which is more like this it's not the greatest comic ever by any means and the the creature is really disappointing i can say much right. as i like grist's work the creature is really disappointing but the 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 exploration of the the Antarctic Refuge, the way that all the characters deal with it, the uh, different way that this Grendel is shown as an outsider, actually falls in love, or at least someone falls in love with him. And his kind of tortured way that he experienced becoming a Grendel just felt like this was the story that kind of met me halfway as a reader. Whereas the previous two stories were very uncompromising, the story kind of almost went out of its way to be to compromise, to give me a lot of different ins I could have. Because, yeah, the car, the carpenter influence, for example, just gave me a place to say, okay, I get where this is and I get where this can be going, so I want to read more about this. Re- the way that Siegel tells the story in a lot more straightforward way, and Siegel at that point had a lot of experience writing comics. I think his first work was for Kimiko doing the book, the Amazon, which would have been like 87 or 88. So he'd been writing comics for five, six, seven years at that point.
1: And, it had and maybe all-
0: he just had a better feeling for how to tell a good action story. Because even the bits, for example, with a monster who yeah, under, again, underwhelming is at least done in a way that feels very, it pays off well in a kind of classic action movie sort of mode. You could certainly see this on the big screen in a way that you they absolutely can't see either the first two major stories in this book as a movie. And actually, the last story, which we'll get to in a minute, you can really see as a great short film. So we close with two stories that I think are a lot more cinematic and a lot more outward-facing.
1: Yeah, I, I I agree with you that the the Grendel in this story is considerably more sympathetic than any of the other Grendels that we've been introduced to so far. Um, the, in fact, all of the characters here are pretty, you know, they're pretty well-drawn. I mean, I, they all seem to be three-dimensional. The artwork didn't bother me so much. I, I like the artwork. I, I thought it was quite unique. I, I can understand people's uh, dislike of it. I can see how he can be a polarizing artist because it is very stylized and uh definitely doesn't you know it definitely didn't cohere or not cohere it definitely didn't um reflect uh the, the artwork that was popular at the time that this was published for certain this came out in um 1994 so that would have been right at the height of the whole image style you know Rob Leefield and uh McFarlane and Jim Lee popular artwork at the time Uh, so it's definitely not like that at all it's definitely more of an indie look to it Ted McKeever for example can be very polarizing to people I mean you either enjoy this art style or you don't as far as the um, storyline is concerned I again Stephen Siegel and he did such an amazing job with Sandman Mystery Theater. I, I admire his writing. I like the Amazon, which was illustrated by Tim Sale, another Grendel artist. But this particular story has some pretty creaky moments, pretty sweaty. Just to give you one example, that seems the most sort of off-putting and took me out of the story, but they're down at this substation in Antarctica they're housing this drug that um, is sort of like. It might understand. This is sort of like an antidote drug to the Grendel drug. Is how yeah, it works. That's how I read it. Yeah. So they they're at this substation that's housing this drug, and these characters are well. The first initial character, uh, they're becoming quite violent. Their uh, eyes are starting to bleed. And of course, the blood in their eyes looks like the Grendel insignia, which I thought was a nice visual touch. But uh, they reach a stage of aggression, and then they just explode. And on page 276, you know, this character is exploding. His chest is opened up. It's extremely bloody and, and, and gory. And then the main character who is the the woman who call Caroline who the grendel you know is the love interest of the grendel uh, she says drake in my office now they go into the office and then she she starts talking about something that has nothing to do with the fact that the sky just exploded i would mm-hmm. think that the first thing that they would be addressing is what the hell just happened out there <laughs> but it, it's almost like an afterthought when they're done with their discussion about this little power play that's taking place between this other guy drake and caroline you know who's in charge at the station seems kind of like well wait a minute why are they having this long discussion about whether or not you know is going to be sending a transport to pick them up or whether or not they're going to have enough food to last them until this happens and wouldn't be the the most important thing to talk about is gee a guy just blew up out there and we don't know why
0: yeah you know
1: it's There's there's a few moments where that happens where the believability and takes
0: me out of the story.
1: A little. He wants fast. to make,
0: He wants to be plot hammering it. Siegel has to plot hammer right. it instead of. Yeah, it it
1: it, it 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 he misses a few beats though along the way, and that took me out of the storyline a little bit. But for the most part, it's a compelling story. It moves at a real steady pace. It doesn't really seem to lose any momentum. the The bear at the end, uh, the monster, is horrible.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I just think it's not compelling. It's not John. Well, no, it's
1: it's it's just it's not it's just not um, kind of reminded me of like the disappointment that a lot of people had when they first read it, and the creature reveal at the end of of Stephen King's novel um, was less than, I guess, Lovecraftian. That it, he was aiming for this Lovecraftian creature, and he came up with something that, I don't want to ruin it for people who haven't read the book, but fell far short of those ambitions. Again, so I think that there's a there's some falling short of ambition here, but for the most part, it's a solid story.
0: It's interesting. It's a solid story. Yeah,
1: that's I mean, well. It's
0: with Jonah's... Jonah's face having the etchings of the Grendel on it I think are really interesting. The bit with the dogs attacking the people is interesting. Like I said, the crucifixion seems really interesting mixing with everything else. Even a little bit about the homosexuality among the Grendels just adds some color to the relationship of these Grendels. Right. But yeah, it doesn't quite come together well enough. I mean, it's a five-part story it should be completely compelling but it's there's something missing somehow
1: yeah i like it in these grendel tales when they add to the world building in a way that seems complementary to uh, wagner's vision i wonder how much of it is wagner feeding them like them calling up matt wagner on the phone and saying i want to flesh out these grendels a little bit can you tell me a little bit more about their society like he has a Brendel bible on the wall or something that he can pull out and say oh by the way there's yeah th- there's elements to the grendel society that are like this and how much of it is he just gave freedom to the writer to
0: buttress the grendel society with certain you know finding let's try and see if matt can join us in january right. to like a, a, a recap with him summing up with him so i know you love devils and deaths
1: Yes. We could say a lot about Edvin Bukovic, who passed away, tragically, when he was about 30 years old. And I believe it was in 1998, shortly after he made his debut with American audiences with Devils and Deaths, this story. He and Darkham McCann were collaborators from a very young age. They lived in... uh, Yeah, so they was Croatian.
0: They they which now is a beautiful place to go on vacation, but at that time was absolutely war torn. Have you been there? No, it's someplace that's on our list.
1: Yeah, I would like, I would very much like to see that part of the world, but um...
0: you have friends who've been there and Uh, to say great things about, and they actually say that people are extremely friendly. But at this point, it was in the middle of the Yugoslav post-Yugoslav civil war and this book feels so infused with the pain of that war yes absolutely it's it's definitely
1: a thinly veiled allegorical representation of the uh, bosnian and serbian conflict absolutely well the characters all have names that are that are clearly serbian sounding or croatian sounding names the the landscape is the landscape of Croatia, even with the the old churches and uh, the villages and the, the the cities that these characters are in, the fact that they play soccer, you know, it definitely has the sort of northern European feel to it. It's very specific to a time and a place, which would have been the world that they were living in. The bombed out buildings that are drawn in the background, I'm sure. At times, he probably could have looked out his window and seen those very same buildings, you know, and drawn them from real life. So there's an immediacy to it. There's a a realism to it that's not only realistic in the sense of the world in which he and McCann were living, but also perfectly married with the whole notion of this futuristic war-torn world of Grendel and the armies of the serbians and the croatians are these are transformed into these competing clans of grendel militias they have you know run by generals the soldiers are all young men there's the sense of lost innocence of children who are living and growing up in this environment that's just completely brutal and yeah. They're still managing to go out and you know play soccer and maintain their family relationships wherever they can. Like this very touching relationship between the two brothers, the the older brother um, who is the main character of this two-parter, and then the younger brother who becomes the main character of the sequel, which is in volume two of, of the Grinch Tales Omnibus, uh, which we'll talk about in the next podcast, but.
0: Definitely yeah, the a, scenes where they're together are just beautiful. That scene on page three ninety four, you just feel this love between them. It's just it's told so well too.
1: Yeah, they. they uh, and that they,
0: contrast between that contrast with that shocking scene right at the very beginning of the story, where yeah. they come across a group of children who are obviously suffering. And then there's this heartbreaking line, that kid you're carrying, I think he's dead. I think it's dead. And it's I think dead. he's dead. I think it's dead.
1: It, yeah.
0: And then we flip to the next page, I think and they're, the, the they're the contaminated, children. they're going to kill everybody. And it's like, what kind of world are these people living in? Uh, you know, after reading about monsters and demons and, you know, literal hell, it's so... It grounds you so much more to see a real-world hell.
1: So these are and orphan children, and they've been irradiated. Yeah. Contaminated, you say. Uh, and they had been holding these children, and just by holding these children and rescuing them, they've become contaminated. And there's this sense of how warfare just affects everybody. It's like a virus. It just spills out the misery from one person to another and it's just so beautifully done and they can't even you know bury the kids because they can't stay around them um mm-hmm. it's just the sense of fatalism and desperation that warfare inflicts upon everyone i'm sorry Wouldn't i didn't mean
0: it gives so much more power to the soccer scenes because right the most ordinary thing in the world is to care and love for children that's taken away from them so you get a feeling of the preciousness of being able to have an ordinary soccer game right when that comes up in the middle of the story uh it it, right. it just is so much more it's just so resonant
1: or where Drago's goes with his little brother and they're talking and um goran is saying like you know and tell me you're not going to go away like you know i every time somebody leaves you think that might be the last time i see that person Mm -hmm. and every time they leave the room and then he goes to uh you know drago asks him to come in so he can hug him and um he says wait you know because he just held that irradiated child he says wait no maybe you shouldn't and he says i'll do it anyway you know because that need for human contact is so great and that the need for that connection is so much more important than the possibility of him infecting him uh, yeah. or po- yeah. infecting him. Uh, it you know just overcomes um, that love sort of triumphs over the horror 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 of this everyday world that they're living in. It's just so wonderfully done. I mean, it's just amazing the way. Bukovic's art, where he's the the expressions. I mean, I can't. I could talk all day long about his skill as an artist. He's incredible. He's uh, Bukovic's art is. It's incredible kineticness of it, the uh, aliveness of it. You can feel the motion on the page. You can see the character. You know, I mean, these are static pictures. It's a comic book, but you can see the movement that they're making before. They're on the page. It's
0: yeah
1: oh so perfect like he's holding up his hand and then he's got kind of an angry look on his face no way and then he sort of looks down better not better and then you know his brother's sort of hurt he's backed away a little bit. he's further away and then the very next this is on page 394 the very next panel they're embracing and then there's a final panel on that page where it's the sun that's like a sun that's covered with smoke. And all you can see is that silver circle, uh, penetrating through that you know cloud or smoke or whatever it may be, and it's just it's poetry. And then the very next page on 395, that sock that sun is replaced with a soccer ball. Yeah. Same composition, same placement on the page as the previous panel, but now it's a soccer ball sitting in a field of grass. I mean, it's just you could study it all day long. It's just amazing the facial expressions the the movements of the characters it's they should teach this in in comic if they have comic book classes they should use this as a as an example for how to do compelling comic book artistry it's just amazing i can't say enough about it's just such a loss to Comics to the art form that he died when he did. Because if he was drawing this well when he was in his twenties, I mean, can you imagine how he would have developed as an artist? Uh, He would have been one of the one of the greats. I think he is still one of the greats, honestly, just on the strength of uh, these couple of Grendel comics that he did. Uh, Another example on page three eighty five, where they're having to draw their swords to decide which one of them goes back and the rest who are going to die a warrior's death because they can't possibly all go back and risk contaminating everyone. So they draw their swords and they're holding them up to each other's necks. And then, you know, one, two, three swords, each, each individual has a sword on each other's neck and they say one, two, three, and then there's, you know, sock, whack, sock, thunk. The panel, three panels down, you know, you see their The top of their bodies and then the next panel you see their midriff and then the third and last panel would be where their feet are the way it's cut you know the way the panels are separated and in that last panel you can see how they're falling into position after they've all cut each other's heads off and then there's a decapitated head sitting in the very corner of the panel far away from the bodies it's just it's amazing. It really is what he can do. A little tiny
0: top thud, and the thud is right above his head, too.
1: And the thud is right above his head, right. I mean, and he also lettered this as well, which I think is important to say. He all he did his own, Bukovic did his own inking and lettering. So he's in complete command of the visual page with all of the sound effects that are used and... Uh, the way the dialogue is written and composed on the page and so on so he's in total command of of the of the the page uh, as it's presented but
0: he does so much that's just smart storytelling where he'll echo the placement of a character from panel to panel right so that your eye will can will stay focused where he wants it to stay focused but he never calls attention to it this isn't a case where someone is showing off he's just using these these storytelling skills in a smart way page 411 for example there's just this there everyone's throwing down knives but you always know exactly where everyone is because it gives you a a focal point for your eye to be at right you can easily fill in the gaps between the panels and it adds more drama to what could be a pretty static scene by just being smart about that placement Uh, i gotta say so I love so much about this book, but I think my favorite bit about it is the monster.
1: Oh, yes. yeah, so there's this so.
0: creature that we get introduced to in the first half of the book, the first half of these these two issues, which is this kind of giant monster who's stealing lambs. At the end of the part one, he's climbing up a cliff to kind of get at the people. In part two, he finally does get to the people. and one of the men, has the creature, the creature finds him and is looming over him. The creature has this kind of befuddled look on his face. The man stands up and the creature starts echoing his movements. And it becomes this moment of kind of sweet grace in the middle of the war where this creature who you expect to be evil is actually showing his personality. I don't want to say humanity, but his, his his reality. And It gives you a moment's respite, and then the female Grendel finds them and attacks them basically because she misunderstands his motivations, and it ends up being the end for both the creature and the woman, and it's such a tragic ending because we had come to really like this this creature, and in fact, on page 418, when we see the creature and the Grendel look at each other, we see this love like a dog would look in its, its master's eyes with love. Um, it's just this really kind of interesting moment of humanity in the middle of a war that just as quickly dissipates. It's just symbolic of the dissolution of the world that's created.
1: To me, it's you have the monster who is this other from outside who represents a threat, who whose motivations are misunderstood, who they are enlisted. Drago, the main character, is enlisted to go out and kill. And the female Grendel goes with him, his love of interest. And then when he finally encounters the creature, he realizes that the creature is not the monster that everyone thought it to be, that it's actually the, probably a mutant who's motivations are whose actions are not of evil intent but come about because of just its need to survive he engages with it in a way that's not aggressive and engages with the this monstrous other on its own terms and then comes to see the humanity in the monster and to me it's such a beautiful metaphor for the enemy in war who is seen as this monstrous other whose motivations are seen with evil intent, but which are more than likely driven by a need to survive and whose humanity is not recognized so that it can be objectified and murdered. And he is Drago is able to see outside of that construct of the evil other and to recognize the humanity that's in this monster and so he's able to transcend and that female comes in at the end i don't remember her name but she misunderstands she's still seeing it as this aggressive monstrous other and she gets murdered by it and then he has no choice but to take it's really touch it's really amazing it's got the the star wars lightsaber of course. Because it's Grendel, and it's really this just amazing. He takes advantage of the monster's ignorance and its playfulness to essentially murder it. And I won't say how. I mean, I mean, it's amazing how you know it's done with with the flashlight under the chin and then the lightsaber under its yeah. chin because it's doing whatever he's doing, like you know, a play play mockery. And then, you know, he says, "I'm sorry, my friend." but this is not the right world for you. This is not the right world for any of us. And then he puts the saber under his chin. The panel sort of draws away in the very next panel. And then you're out in the darkness and all you see is the light from that lightsaber arcing up and that's it. You know, and he, he commits suicide. Uh, It's such an amazing, it's, it as you said, he's not showing off. None of this is real showy or flashy. It's it's all in the service of the story, and it's all done in a completely masterful way. It's really it's really amazing. And then you know, on the on the other side of that, you have two characters, which uh, you know this storyline is in, is important to mention with regards to the the subsequent storyline. But the the general and his son who are blood relatives and part of the same clan, he's not the monstrous other, the son. He's this innocent, seemingly innocent child. But at the end of that uh, storyline, he induces the other, you know, through ambition for power, to assist him in murdering his own father, who he he sees as kind of like a joke. And that's contrasted with this monster that Drago has to confront. You know, so here's this child who's part of their clan, and he's a murderous bastard with purely evil intent. And then here's this monster whose intent is anything but evil. And it's just so amazing. They're able to do this in, what, 48 pages? (laughs) There's more story content here than in six issues of four devils, one hell. And, you know, all of its storylines that are taking place. There's so much more to enjoy and digest and meditate upon in this story than in most, I don't know, 12 issue series. So it's, it's just a, I mean, hats off to McCann for constructing this incredibly tight, dramatic, dramatic, narrative i mean it's 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 really 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 impressive
0: and the last line you fought good wars man to man sword to sword i dreamed of them but there are no good wars anymore right and then the boy walks away towards the church which is shrouded in darkness with a sword on his shoulders he's literally carrying the burden uh, for for all the world he he lived in, all the world he's been part of, and, and that trying to find some redemption in this corrupted, awful world, right? He's even there, uh, He's there, He's even making that speech under a, a statue of the Virgin Mary with her head chopped off. It's have, just so wonderfully realized, like you're saying.
1: And the Slavic countries are, you know historically, extremely religious societies. And there's that sense of a moral decay that's sort of symbolized by these churches that represent uh, goodness toward one another, this Christian idea of loving one's brother. And it's it's this edifice that's fallen into decay. It's this remnant of a past that just no longer applies. And that's perfectly represented by that you know, that as you said, the Virgin Mary with her head cut off. It's just um there's there's no higher being that can be appealed to anymore. It's everyone is just on their own. And it's yeah, it's really amazing. Yeah, he's talking to his brother and he's saying that they're the Kuratani, which are the, the other, they're, they're the monstrous other, uh, they use forbidden weapons now. That's right. So it's just like this, you know, things are, you th- things were barbaric now. They're getting worse.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: There's this uh, hopelessness.
0: <sighs> really, I'm really looking forward to reading part two of this. Although I might want to, you know, put on my Grendel mask and and wallow in the darkness. (laughs) What do we have to look forward to beside that in Volume 2 of Grendel Tales?
1: Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, there's the Grendel Tales Omnibus Volume 2, and that's the last of the Omnibuses, or Omnibi. Uh,
0: What are the stories that we're going to get a chance to read in that collection? There is the, the final one of the stories by this great creative team. What else is in there?
1: Devils and Deaths. And then there's, um, well, there's that really good Terry LeBond one, I, which I enjoyed. About the Devil the, Make uh,
0: Care by Terry LeBond and Peter Doherty. Yeah. Okay.
1: So there's those two. There's a third one that I'm not thinking of.
0: Well, there's a Pat McGowan story in there as well, I saw.
1: That's right. Uh, that one, I think, will will be really interesting to talk to you about because that's a, another Susan uh story uh it has a wonderful artwork by it's Patrick McGowan and he's uh inked and painted over by Dave Cooper of all people. Huh. <laughs> Which is really interesting. I think one of the few examples of Dave Cooper doing semi-mainstream comics, right? Yeah, that's an interesting one. That's sort of uh bookended by that takes place between War Child and Past Prime.
0: Devil and then the last one is, I think, some of the earliest Steve Lieber art. The Devil's yeah. Apprentice.
1: Yes, Devil's Apprentice, which is I think probably my least favorite of all of these by far. <laughs>
0: okay. I gotta say, I've been I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed Grendel Tales Volume One. Each of these stories was a little off-putting. A little yeah. little hard to get into but each one had its own qualities to it i mean we were complaining a little bit about four devils one hell but i think it's got a lot of really compelling elements to it that make it at least an interesting read i mean i would definitely recommend the entire collection to everybody with the classic story we were just raving about as being the real standout i agree uh the
1: mccann the Kovich stuff is was uh, collected entirely in one volume by Dark Horse called Devils and Deaths, with which is unfortunately out of print now. But you can still find it secondhand if you just want to experience that material, which is the pinnacle of the of the Devil's Tales. But I think you would, I think anybody who enjoys Brendel would benefit from reading the entirety of it. The Rob Walton stuff is. Very interesting. Four Devils One Hell. I mean, even though it's a bit convoluted and not entirely successful, the Teddy Christensen's art is extraordinary. And the uh, Steven Siegel Paul Griss storyline is a lot of fun. So I, I think it's very worthwhile volume. I look forward to talking about volumes two. Oh, thank you.